The Blevins Franks Report with Rob Kay of Blevins Franks Wealth Management. It's that time on the Sunday morning here on Riviera Radio where we talk to Rob Kay. How are you doing, Rob? I'm very well, thank you. How are you yourself? I'm very well, thank you very much indeed. Good. Well, over the past few weeks, we've discussed how a change of government in the UK could impact the financial assets we have left in the UK. And this week, I'd like us to focus on pensions. But before we discuss pensions, what's caught your eye in the news this week? Well, Howard, this week, uh, Christine Lagarde, the European Central Bank president, hinted that interest rates may have peaked, but suggesting borrowing costs will remain high for as long as it takes to bring inflation down to that magical central bank target figure of 2% after the ECB raised interest rates to the highest level since the launch of the euro. The, the latest increase pushes the ECB's deposit rate, which is paid on commercial bank deposits, from 3.75% to 4%. Its main refining operations, which provide the bulk of the liquidity to the banking system, was increased from 4.25% up to 4.5%. And the marginal lending facility, which offers overnight credit to banks, was increased to 4.75%. This was the 10th consecutive interest rate rise and the ECB warned inflation remains too high even as the impact of previous increases and a weakening outlook for global trade weigh on the Eurozone economy. The policymakers at the Bank of England then followed suit but the US Federal Reserve elected to leave borrowing costs unchanged despite an uptick in US inflation over the last month which was actually blamed on higher energy costs. Stock markets across Europe reacted positively to the news which had been received with the hope that interest rate hikes are coming to an end, which is what Lagarde had said. Now, based on its current assessment, the Governing Council considers the key ECB interest rates have reached levels that maintained for a sufficient long enough duration will make a substantial contribution to the timely return of inflation to that magical 2% target. The ECB forecast... Uh, or the ECB have forecast inflation will drop to 3.2% in 2024, then down to 2.1% in 2025. The UK's public support, as a result of all these shenanigans, for the Bank of England has fallen to a record low, as a number of a number as calling for interest rates to be cut much further has actually increased since the global financial crisis. The central bank saw its first ever negative approval rating last year and its reputation has continued to decline since then. The Bank of England's latest quarterly survey, sampled between the 4th and 7th of August, found that only 19% of the public are satisfied with the bank's performance in fighting inflation, compared to 40% who are dissatisfied, the lowest level since records began way back in 1999. Even during the global financial crisis, Opinions of the Bank of England remain positive, with its low point seeing 38% satisfied to 28% dissatisfied in February 2009. When asked what would be the best for the economy, 40% called for interest rates to be cut, the highest number since November 2008, while only 13% said interest rates should be hiked. Please excuse the description I am about to use to describe state visits, but they seem to be like London buses. You wait for ages, then two come along. On Wednesday, King Charles and Queen Camilla arrived for their, their rearranged French state visit. Over the three days that followed, they visited Paris and Bordeaux. We were told to highlight the strength of the UK's bilateral relationship with France 
and demonstrate the many ways the two countries are working together, highlighting sustainability and the power of community, which are key themes of importance to the citizens, we are told, of both our nations. Now, as the King and Queen departed on Friday, Pope Francis arrived. His two-day Marseille pilgrimage is in response to an invitation made by Bishop Jean-Marc Aveline in memory of the saints Martha, Mary and Lazarus, patron saints of the Diocese of Marseille. Now, this was a very special visit because the last time a Pope visited Marseille was Pope Clement VII, way back in 1533. Unfortunately, Clement VII died 12 months later, actually on the 25th of September, so that's 489 years ago tomorrow. Okay. Uh, didn't Keir Starmer go to Paris earlier this week? He did. Absolutely. <laughs> it, wasn't yes. a, a, it wasn't an official visit, but, uh, you know... I, 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 I don't think that counts as a state visit, Howard. <laughs> no, but it, it, they, were, they were talking about it, because I'm, I'm making a link here, you see. I'm making a link into the next question, but they were saying, you uh, know, you know, what Labour's plans are, and getting a little bit closer to Europe, perhaps. Who knows? So, has Labour given us any clues about their plans for pensions? Um, yeah, since uh, since Rachel Reeves took over as Labour's shadow chancellor, she has restored some of her party's reputation for economic competence and she recently launched what we were told will be one of the big themes for, of her chancellorship. A Labour government will in, encourage pension funds to invest in British startups and Labour's big green energy projects. The Tony Blair Institute has come up with a plan to merge thousands of small occupational funds into a handful of super funds that it says will be cheaper to manage and more easily encouraged. There's that word again, to invest in state-approved projects. Of course, there is nothing wrong with allowing pension funds to invest more widely. It could be argued that over the past 20 years, pension funds have invested far too much in government bonds and far too little in the London stock market. With £2.5 trillion tucked away in pension funds, the UK is really quite fortunate to have a relatively well-funded retirement sector, while many countries have what's known as a pay-as-you-go system, which can quickly become bankrupt as the population ages. The trouble is, this treasure trove of cash is becoming a more and more irresistible target for the state, which is running out of ideas and sources of income to balance the books. Taxes in the UK have been driven up to the highest level seen in the past 70 years. The £2.5 trillion, I would suggest, looks like one of the last really tempting targets to raise a bit more quick revenue. Earlier this year, the UK's Institute for Fiscal Studies published a report which has signposted radical changes. What did the report say? The, uh, the the report was, was, as you sort of inferred, highly controversial to say the least because it, it suggested UK pensions should be liable to both income tax and inheritance tax when the scheme member dies. The IFS's rationale is that their proposals would make the tax treatment of pensions fairer and economically more efficient. The reforms would mainly apply to defined contribution pensions, which in essence are pensions which we've made contributions to. The proposals would remove the use of pensions as a vehicle for tax-incentivised bequests, which means they would be included in the value of an estate for inheritance tax purposes. Applying income tax to the funds left in a pension when the member dies would generate an entirely new source of income for whichever government is in, is in power at the time. And the IFS estimates applying IHT to pensions could potentially raise another £2 billion of revenue 
for the Exchequer. The IFS believes these reforms could also have a short-term impact. By removing the exemption from inheritance tax, there would be no reason to leave pensions to accumulate additional value because you would be simply increasing your family's eventual tax bill. The reasoning is this would encourage members to take income and spend it, which will help invigorate the UK's economy. The IFS proposals did not, as you would imagine, receive a completely warm welcome from most commentators. They believe that the proposals will only benefit the UK Treasury and they are a short-term thinking strategy because they will undermine pensions. People will stop using them to finance their retirement, which in the end will increase the burden of retirement on the state and render the changes absolutely useless. Whether the IFS proposals are accepted or ignored, going back to what I said in response to your previous question, Howard, this once again highlights the fact there is 2.5 trillion pounds sitting in UK money purchase pensions, and it's just too juicy a target winking at the UK taxman to be left alone indefinitely. If you've left the UK, why would you want to leave a valuable asset in the mercy or at the mercy of the UK taxman when with appropriate advice you could avoid that threat completely? Two things come to my mind, cause and effect and the butterfly effect when you've got all these things going on. Yeah. Yeah. So, Labour was quite vocal about the abolishment of the lifetime allowance. Yeah, it, it, it's safe to say that Jeremy Hunt caught everyone out with this one. When the lifetime allowance was first introduced way back in 2006, the threshold was set then at £1.25 million. That threshold gradually increased to £1.8 million. But in 2016, it was slashed back to 1 million. Since then, it has periodically been increased, usually by whatever inflation was that year. Now, before Hunt abolished it, the threshold stood at a million and seventy-one thousand three hundred pounds, and any excess was taxed at either 25 or 55 percent. If the excess was taken as a lump sum, if you've accumulated a healthy pot in your pension, this change is a really big deal. I've met a lot of people over the years who have simply parked their pensions and not touched them because the tax charge, the tax charge is not payable until pensions are crystallised, which in simple terms means accessed. People have used other assets rather than paying the lifetime allowance charge. I've seen people dig into savings, sell properties, or use equity release schemes to avoid paying the lifetime allowance tax charge. The lifetime allowance charge didn't just apply to monies accumulated in private pensions, it applied to company pensions, also known as defined benefits pensions. Since Hunt's announcement, more people have accessed their pensions than at any time in the last 50 years. Rachel Reeves described the abolition as a Tory tax cut for the rich and a budget was a chance for the government to unlock Britain's promise and potential. But all the Tories did was give £1 billion pension bung to 1%, which will widen the cost of living in the UK. She promised the next Labour government will immediately reverse the abolition. The next UK general election must be held no later than the 24th of January 2025. So if the lifetime allowance abolition is a positive move for you, you have 16 months to crystallise your pensions and avoid that reimposition. Pensions have always been taxed in enhanced savings schemes promoted by a succession of UK governments, whether their policies were to the right, left or in the middle. These governments all offered us tax incentives to use pensions so we wouldn't be a burden on the state when we start working. Prior to 2006, you were not penalised for having too much money in your pension savings. The Labour government at the time 
and then their predecessors, has promoted this change of attitude. For lots and lots of people, the abolition of the LTA is like finding one of Willy Wonka's golden tickets, but this is one that could have a very, very limited shelf life. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. The average person apparently has five jobs or works for five employers during the working life. What happens to the pension contributions we made to previous employers' schemes? Um, yeah, you're absolutely correct, Howard. Apparently, there's about £50 million lost in unclaimed investment, savings, pensions and insurance policies. But by far, the biggest amount is sitting in forgotten pension funds. It's estimated as much as £37 billion is sitting there in forgotten pensions. As you said, lots of us have switched jobs during our careers. And it's easy to forget a pension when you've maybe only contributed for a few years. Add to that lost paperwork... And it's very easy for a pension firm to to lose track of us or forget us, which could be quite convenient, I would suggest. Now, tracing lost pension assets can be difficult, but there are very various internet tool-based based, uh, apps that can help us. Policy Detective is a really good application for searching for insurance policies, banks and building society accounts. Um, My Lost Account is good for tracking down old bank accounts and premium bonds. For pensions, there are various tracing services, but the one I have regularly used is the UK government's tracking service, www.gov.uk slash find hyphen pension hyphen contact hyphen details. You can find current contact details for your pension provider, and then you'll need to write to them to obtain an up-to-date detail or details about that pension. Interesting. Well, one listener has specifically asked, what is the Pension Protection Fund? Yeah, an interesting one. Uh, and honestly, very topical this uh, this week, this month, Howard. The, the Pension Protection Fund is the rescue scheme that, that protects savers in failing occupational pension funds. The PPF was created in 2005, and it's crucial for members of defined benefits pensions whose employers or former employers go out of business at a time when the scheme doesn't have enough money to cover its pension commitments. Once a pension scheme is declared in default, which happened, as I said earlier this week, to the Wilco Pension Fund, the PPF takes control of the scheme's assets and it assumes responsibility for paying the members' pensions. Existing pensioners receive 100% of their entitlement and future pensioners receive 90% of the pension they were entitled to on the day their employer became insolvent. There is no cap on benefits these days, which was a welcome change when that was introduced um, a couple of years ago in 2021. But although annual increases are linked to inflation, which will be beneficial obviously at the moment, they are actually capped at 2.5%. The importance of the Pension Protection Fund should not be underestimated. Prior to 2005, savers could have lost all their pension benefits after contributing to occupational schemes for many, many years. Robert Maxwell and the Merrow Group pension scheme quickly comes to mind. In recent years, the PPF has come to the rescue of members in, in various high-profile pension schemes such as BHS, Hoover, Toys R Us, British Skill, and as I said this week, the Wilco scheme members. From a more general perspective, how are UK pensions taxed by France? Um, whether we are UK resident or French resident, UK state pensions are always paid gross from the UK. So if we are French resident, 
our UK state pension must be declared on our French tax declaration and it will be taxed in France, not in the UK. We regularly come across several misunderstandings with UK state pensions. The first and, and the most wrong, excuse the expression, is the belief that the UK state pensions are tax-free, so they don't need to be declared. Another big misconception is state pensions are taxed at source before we receive them, so again, they don't need to be declared. Over the years, I've also met lots of people who thought because their state pensions are paid from the UK, it's covered by their UK personal allowance, so no UK tax is paid, so therefore they don't need to make a French tax declaration. These opinions are all wrong. Maybe they're just misunderstandings or possibly wishful thinking. If we don't declare our UK state pensions on our French tax declaration, our tax declaration is wrong and we're running the risk of fines, penalties and back payments of underpaid taxes. If we live in France or the UK for that matter, all our worldwide income, including UK state pensions, needs to be declared on our annual tax declaration. It may sound simplistic, Howard, but government service pensions are accumulated while we are employed by the UK government. And the UK government service pensions are therefore always taxed in the UK, regardless of where that pension recipient lives. But what counts as a government pension? Frustratingly, identifying what is and what isn't is a little more difficult than you might expect. For example, a National Health Service, NHS pension, might not be considered a government service pension, but then just to confuse everything, if it's paid directly by a local authority, it is, as I said, very confusing. Although UK government pensions are not taxed directly in France, they do still need to be declared on our French tax declarations. The UK-France Double Tax Treaty ensures we won't pay tax twice on that income. We'll get a tax credit which is equal to the tax and the social charge we would have paid if the pension receipt was only liable to tax in France. And finally, what advice do you have for listeners who might have UK pensions? Uh, I suppose we're back to, to the Blevins Franks raison d'etre, Howard. Don't assume the rules which apply in France are the same as those in the UK. The French tax manual doesn't contain a chapter which covers all the various forms of UK pensions, just as it doesn't for every other country's pensions. At best, the French tax system accommodates overseas pensions, but we can't get away from the fact our pensions will be accommodated by being slotted into the box which the French authorities feel is most appropriate. It's logical. No, it, it, it's actually crucial. We make sure the box on our pensions, or the box we use for our pensions, is allocated in the most appropriate for our tax well-being, which usually means taking professional advice from a firm such as Blevins Franks, who are authorised and qualified to give pensions advice both here in France and in the UK. Now, this has become a major challenge since Brexit because as the Windsor Agreement, uh, which was signed a few months ago, has confirmed... UK-based pensions advisors don't have the ability to passport their services into Europe. So, to discuss your pensions, or if we can help you by looking at your overall strategic financial planning arrangements, contact Levins Franks and arrange to speak to one of our locally-based partners. Initial discussions are complimentary, so to arrange a call, contact our French hub, and the telephone number there is 0493-001780. That's 0493 001780. If our Monaco office is more convenient for you, you can obviously also contact our Monaco office and the number here in Monaco is 97775574. That's 97775574. 
And if you'd like to know more about Blending Franks, or if you prefer to make contact via the internet, visit our website, which is www.blevinsfranks.com. Many thanks, Rob. Very topical. And we'll talk again next Sunday. Look forward to it, Howard. Have a great week. The Blevins Franks Report. If you would like more information on any of the topics discussed in this program, contact your local Blevins Franks office on 0493001780 or riviera at blevinsfranks.com. Focusing on the big picture. At Blevins Franks, our financial advisors take a holistic approach. We get to know our clients, your family situation and objectives, and our integrated advice covers tax and estate planning, savings and investments, and pensions. We aim to consolidate many of your assets, keeping things simple for you and your family and heirs. Get in touch with your local Blevins Franks advisors today. Visit BlevinsFranks.com. That's BlevinsFranks.com.